you ever wondered why so often do the wicked win? What's the point in serving God if it's more beneficial to live like the world? It seems like in so many areas the wicked are winning. Whether it's in the way of relationships, finding a a person to date, whether it's in the way of advancing in your way of business, you'll find that typically it seems that those that are willing to cheat a little bit, steal a little bit, push somebody down to climb the ladder, they just, they tend to make it to the top faster. Sometimes it's in the financial world, You're willing to lie a little bit, cheat a little bit, lie on your taxes, fudge numbers here, fudge numbers there. Seems like the wicked just seem to gain in ways that the righteous do not. And when you look around and you see the prosperity of the wicked, it begs the question, what is the point in serving God at all? Sounds like a strange way to start off a church service. But I almost just quoted to you, the first 14 verses of Psalm 73. Do you know the Bible itself asks these questions? We're going to look at that this morning. What happens when the wicked win? We're going to read the first 14 verses of Psalm 73. I'll ask you to stand, as is our custom, to honor the reading of the Holy Word of God. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in troubles as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore... His people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. You may be seated. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. 
You know, one of the things that uh, sets the Bible apart from every other book in the history of the world, uh, one of the many things, is its absolute, unparalleled transparency and honesty. I mean, who would have thought we would have read what we just read in the Bible? It gives us a very honest and open and transparent look at the way we as people often think. And if we are honest, to one degree or another, all of us at times have wondered the same thoughts that the psalmist wondered here. Maybe not quite to the same extent. Maybe you've never said to yourself, this is vain, what's the point in serving God? But we are all prone to look at the wicked, the way of the world, and at times to find ourselves thinking similar thoughts, like does it really pay to serve God? Would it really hurt that much to stretch the rules a little bit and do it the way the wicked do? Because they always win. I want to get promoted. I need this, I need that. And it seems that the wicked are the ones who tend to always get it because they're willing to break the rules that I can't break. This morning, we're going to study Psalm 73. And what I want to do is answer the question, why do the wicked win? Do the wicked win? We're going to look at five truths about what we will call the prosperity of the wicked. Five truths about the prosperity of the wicked. Number one, and we see it in the first 14 verses, focusing on the wicked leads to despair. Focusing on the wicked leads to despair. This is a very important uh, truth that we have to uh, come to grips with. I'm going to give you some things you need to guard your heart with in point number one. And the first thing you need to guard your heart with is fixating on the wicked. We all are tempted to do it to fixate on the wicked. But fixating on the wicked, fixating on what is wrong, fixating on the prosperity of the wicked, fixating on their winning, always leads to despair. I'm going to tell you, brothers and sisters, uh, I've been discouraged at times over the last two and a half years at how far the church has fallen into this trap. I've watched the church do it about every four years when elections come around and that type of thing. But with COVID the last two and a half years, I have watched the church fixate on the wicked in such a way that I've never seen in my 20 years. And the one thing I can say is over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, it leads to despair. So much so, I'm being really transparent here, folks, but it's been so discouraging to me at times. There was a time about a year and a half ago that I really questioned whether or not I needed to be leading this church anymore. I mean, my thought was this. I've been preaching now for a decade and a half, And after a decade and a half of preaching, 
if the same people sitting under my preaching are all of a sudden trembling in their boots and fixating on all that is wrong in the world, they obviously need somebody much better than me to be teaching them truth because they are not listening. I had this conversation with God. I've said it as many times as I can, this direction, this direction, this direction, but these folks cannot get their eyes off of fixating on all that's wrong. Now, I'm not talking about sticking our heads in the sand and being ignorant of what's happening around us, but there is a vast difference between being aware of what's happening in the world and fixating on the wicked. Vast difference. And I have watched the church fixate on all that is wrong. It's not healthy for us. It leads to despair. I said this in the first service, so I'll say it now. It's my opinion, just an opinion of mine, that of all the cable news networks, cable news, probably the most accurate information that you're going to get on a regular basis is from Fox News. If you don't like that, that's fine. If you do, hold your applause. <laughs> but listen to me. There's a reason I said that, because I want you to understand what I'm about to say. If you waste two to five hours of your life every day watching Fox News, your heart's not right with God. You are fixating on what is wrong. And I got a news flash for you. News is about ratings. And you know what people tend to consume? Fear. And we like to convince ourselves everything we're being fed is true because it makes us feel better about consuming it. And we want to stick our head in the sand and not acknowledge that the very people that are feeding us actually win. They get better ratings if they continually feed us fear. So if you're stuck on Facebook, on Fox News, on CNN, or anything in between, listen to me and listen to your pastor. And don't get, don't get your heart hurt this morning, but listen to me. I'm trying to help you. Your heart's not right with God like you think it is. It is not God's plan for your life for you to fixate on all that's wrong. You would probably sincerely be deeply troubled if you took the hours of your life in the last two years that you have used and devoted to consuming news, and we put it here, and then you took the hours of your life that you have used and consumed with your devotion to God, your time in the Word, and your time in prayer, and you took all of those things, your time at church, take it all, brothers and sisters, and put it in a big bucket. You're going to find over here, you, you probably like 10%, if you're lucky, of the time you have fixated on the news. Now here's the lesson this morning because we're going to see the story changes in a moment. Fixating on what is wicked will absolutely cause you to live in despair. There are some temptations that happen when, when we, we look at the wicked and we feel like they're winning in the short game. You got to guard your heart. In verse 2 we see there's a temptation to just say fine I'll do it that way. 
Look what he says in verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Here's what he's saying. I almost decided to just do it the way they do it. That's almost what happened. Like I was this close. My feet were this close to just saying, forget it. If it pays to live like the wicked, if that's how they go to battle, I'm going to fight hate with hate. If they're going to be loud, I'm going to be louder. And all of a sudden, we throw, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. We throw it right out the garbage. Because that doesn't work. God's way doesn't work. This is exactly what the psalmist believed for a period of time. There are some of you under the sound of my voice that that resonates with you. It's difficult to acknowledge. Yes, that's where my heart has gone. It's difficult to say it in such pointed words. But if you're honest and you have integrity, you have fallen for the devil's schemes in your life to convince you to fixate on what is wicked even to the point where you start to think, let's just do it that way. Listen, winning at any cost is not winning. There's a temptation to covet the rewards of wickedness. Look at verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I was envious. I wanted it. I envied it. I coveted it. You have to guard your heart against that. Coveting the rewards of wickedness. Because it seems, until we take a closer look, it seems like the wicked are winning. God tells the Christian to not be unequally yoked. You feel like you've got to wait forever for, uh, you know, your significant other. Meanwhile, the wicked are out there switching it up every week. You see, the devil promises immediate gratification. And that's all he wants you to fixate on. He doesn't tell you how much damage is going to come. He doesn't tell you where it's really going to lead. In fact, he doesn't want you to know. But the idea, this is the way Satan's kingdom works. You sin against God right now, and there'll be an instant reward. And for the child of God who does it by God's way, where God often tests us, and he wants us to, to trust him, and, he's, and he's, he wants us to wait for what is best. The temptation of the Christians are looking like, well, they don't have to wait. What's the point of serving God? And we must guard our heart, brothers and sisters, against being envious and coveting the rewards of wickedness. Next, there is a temptation to question the goodness of God. We see this in verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. There's two things that he's being tempted here to do. Number one, to question the goodness of God. It's in vain that I've done it God's way. It's in vain that I've been faithful to God. God's not going to reward me. God's not being good to me. And so it's just in vain. And then we see that the next thing here that he's really being tempted to do is to question your very devotion to God. Why do it? If it's easier to just do it the way of the world, if I'm going to get rewarded by doing it that way, why do it God's way? And then ultimately, there's the temptation to wallow in self-pity. Verse 14, for all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. 
trust me, just trust me, that's an exaggeration. All day long, every day. This is where we get, though, when we get our heart and our mind in the wrong place. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just all bad. There's nothing good. It's all terrible. Doesn't pay at all to serve God. I really appreciate how open the Word of God with, is with us and shows us that sometimes we get here. And hopefully, if you've ever been there right now, instead of being ashamed... There's a part of you that's like, whoa, like the Bible knows right where I'm at. And I'm not the only person that's ever felt these things, and I'm not the only person that's ever had these thoughts. The Bible also tells us that we cannot be ignorant of the devil's schemes. It tells us not to be. You know, the devil has a scheme. That is a well-thought-out plot to ruin your life, or at the very best, or alter it in a great way. If he can't ruin you, he wants to alter it. He wants us to make bad decisions in a moment of darkness, in a moment of temporary fog, and then we do sin against God. And you know what happens? We find ourselves, we need revelation of truth. When you do it the way of the world, what you really find out is it doesn't satisfy. That the temporary Reward is so fleeting that often you regret it five minutes later. Whether it's a compromise financially, whether it's a compromise morally, often it's less than 24 hours before we wake up and we think to ourselves, that was dumb. Why did I do that? And then... We jump right back on the same train and think, I'll try it again with somebody else, with something new, with this or that. And it's this constant rat wheel where we're never truly satisfied. But when we get our heart and our mind wrong, we start to look at life the same way the psalmist did here. So point number one, focusing on the wicked leads to despair. Number two, there is great wisdom in being cautious with our doubts. Look at verse 15 in reference to all that he had just said. If I had said, I'm going to speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. I want to read you what I wrote in my Bible beside this verse. Asaph refused to infect the people of God with the poison of his own doubt and fears. Wisely, after he got his heart right and his mind cleared, after he was ready to pen the next 14 verses, then he shares his testimony with us of how he came out of a place of doubt and despair. He said, had I just said that, I would have betrayed your children. There's a great wisdom in keeping your mouth shut when you're going through dark days like this. Now, I'm not talking about don't go to your pastor. I'm not talking about don't go to somebody for spiritual wisdom. I'm just saying don't go spouting to everybody, you know, maybe we're all wrong here. Maybe God doesn't really love you. Maybe he doesn't really love me. Maybe God's not good. Don't do that. 
Because there will come a day your story changes. I don't know if you realized it or not when we were reading there, if you had your Bible open, but the psalm doesn't actually end there. And there is great wisdom when we are going through these moments of panic and doubt to making sure I don't take my panic and my doubt and poison someone else's life with it. If I need counsel from a spiritual elder that I know can handle what I need to talk to him about, great. That's a different story. Jesus' disciples went to Jesus all the time. They're like, we don't understand what's going on here, and Jesus would talk to them. I'm just talking about generally, you need to make sure that you're not going around telling all your friends, all the, your Christian friends, and, and, not, and especially the lost. When you find yourself in those moments of darkness... Number three, the story begins to change in verse 16 and 17. The third truth about the prosperity of the wicked, we see it here in Psalm 73, is that the house of God is the greatest place on earth for truth and discernment. Look at verse 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. He said, first of all, trying to understand it all on my own, it's a wearisome task. And you will find when you try to understand it all on your own, Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? Why does God not answer my prayers the way I think God should answer my prayers? Why doesn't God do it on my timetable? Why, 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 why? If God's good, why doesn't he punish these people? Why does he let bad people do bad things? You will find yourself absolutely troubled if you try to figure all that out on your own. In fact, it will do exactly what happened in the first 14 verses. It'll turn your heart the wrong direction. But the writer says, something happened. Something completely and totally radical happened that changed my entire perspective. What happened? He went to the sanctuary of God and discerned the truth. You better believe there is a reason that God wants to, or that Satan wants to keep people from the house of God. Something happens when we come into the sanctuary of God. And I'm going to come back to this point, but I want to put a comma and comment on something. Going to church is not the same thing as going to the sanctuary of God. It should be, but it's not automatically. I'm not being critical, I'm not being mean-spirited, but every place that calls itself a church is not really the house of God. What makes something the house of God is God being there. That's what makes it the house of God. It's where God is. And not everywhere that has The word church in it this morning from coast to coast and has doors open and has people in it and has somebody on the stage teaching or something. Not everywhere truly is God in that place. I wish that wasn't the case, but it's a fact. And if it is a place where God is not moving, 
where the word of God is not truly being taught, you're not going to get help there. So I'm going to come back to my point. I just wanted to kind of clarify the sanctuary of God. But when you do show up, and you're in a place where God himself is present, things happen in that atmosphere that cannot happen anywhere else on earth. And the writer says, my life was messed up. Like, he was really open with this there. Like, I'm thinking it'd be better to be wicked. I'm thinking, like, it's in vain to be a child of God. What's the point of it all? He says, in trying to do it on my own, it was so wearisome. But when I came to the sanctuary of God, when I came to the house of God, it was there that I found truth and discernment. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, we need the house of God. We need to come to the house of God. We need to meet with God. And it set everything right in this man's life. It was a defining moment for him when everything changed. Changed. It is no wonder that the enemy of our soul works so hard to separate us from the house of God. We have grown to a place where some people believe church is sitting in their pajamas, distanced from the body of Christ, watching on a screen, and still somehow thinking, this is church. This is the house of God. It's not. I've said it a thousand times, and I'll say it a thousand times more. I'm grateful for online services. We're broadcasting live right now. I'm thankful The people who are not able physically, maybe they're sick. We have people from the well, probably home this morning because they're sick, able to still tune in and watch what's happening here. That's good. But make no mistake about it. There has been a concerted effort of the enemy to reduce church To an hour behind a screen. I promise you this. There's not a single person watching online. We could have a thousand watching online right now. And there wouldn't be one single one of them. That truly knows anything about the atmosphere we just experienced in worship. You don't know. You can't know. But I was here. And I do know. The sanctuary of God is the greatest place on earth for truth and discernment. It's here that you find truth. It's here that you find discernment. It's here that you find the whole story. That's what we're about to find out. The enemy don't want you to know the whole story. That's why he wants you to fixate on the wicked. It's here we find reality, right focus, a right mind, a right heart. So let us move. What did he discern? What changed? Number four, 
the truth about the prosperity of the wicked. Number four is that the wicked will come to ruin. Look at verse 18. Truly, this is what the truth is. You set them in slippery places and you make them fall to ruin. And then in verse 27. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who was unfaithful to you. Here's what he said. I was wrong about what I thought. While it would seem that the wicked were winning, the truth is they're going to perish. You know the word perish, it's, it's kind of a nasty word. It's, it's, it, it deals with food when it becomes rotten. It's like an apple that all of a sudden is mush and eaten up with maggots. You don't even want to touch it. You'd rather starve than put it in your mouth. In fact, it's still where we get the words perishable foods and unperishable foods. Here's what the Bible says of the wicked. They will perish. And the worst part is it is for eternity. It's very difficult for us to wrap our minds around eternity. It's forever. It's, it's so, eternity is so huge that the best way it could be described for us is it takes the life we do have. And here's what it says about the life we do have. It's but a breath. It's like a vapor. It's here and gone. Picture winter when it's cold and you breathe. And those, the fog comes out for just a few seconds and then it's gone. That's what your life is like. That's how short your life is compared to eternity. Who's winning now? The psalmist said, I got my heart straight. I got my mind straight. I realized I was wrong about it. The wicked never win. And in the end, they ultimately perish. And God's the one who sees to it. It's going to happen. There will be a perishing of the wicked. And the greatest truth that the psalmist came to see was that there is no reward greater than God. And he really kind of builds this up. Let's look at it starting in verse 21. I want to read 21 and 22, and then we'll read uh, 23 through 25. First of all, verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. He came to the reality of how he really was. And I'm going to tell you something. If you can't be honest about who you really were, you haven't truly found repentance yet. This is like as honest as it gets. I was arrogant. I was ignorant. I was brutish. I was a fool. I was basically like a dumb beast. That's the way that I was. This is the way that we are. We, we think stupidly. When we get in that place of darkness. And if you're there this morning, I plead with you. Don't listen to your heart. Don't listen to your feelings. Don't make decisions that are going to ruin the rest of your life because you're angry and bitter in your heart. You've got to have discipline. And I can say that to you from someone who's been there. 
you've ever heard my full testimony, you know, even as a Christian, with the first year and a half when we had started this church, I went through a very dark depression. But I had enough common sense at that time to know just because I thought something didn't make it true. Just because I felt like quitting didn't mean I should. Just because I couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel doesn't mean there wasn't an end of the tunnel. I say it a lot this way. Do not make permanent decisions in a temporary fog. And it's in those moments of darkness you have to remember what you knew in the light. It takes discipline. You've got to remind yourself of what is true. Because the reality is it's in those places and it's in that time, whether we are honest enough like Asaph was or not to admit it, the truth is we're like beasts. Our minds ain't working. We're arrogant. We're ignorant. But I want to begin to, to, to show you the goodness of God. Here's what he says. Look at the, begin, the first word of verse 21. It's an important word. When. He says, when I was bitter. When my heart wasn't right. When I was brutish. When I was ignorant. When I was a beast. Nevertheless, look at verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you, you hold my right hand. Everything begins to change here, brothers and sisters. He says it was in the sanctuary of God I was reminded of something. I got my eyes off of the wicked and I got my eyes and my heart on God and I realized that even when I was a blubbering fool, even then, nevertheless, God was with me through it all. There's nobody like God. There's nobody as good as Him. And I can look at times in my life where my heart wasn't really where it needed to be and my mind wasn't really where it needed to be. And if it was all for me, I would have stumbled and I would have slipped. But nevertheless, God was faithful through it all. Even when I was like a beast, even when my heart wasn't right, nevertheless, it was God that got me to where I am. And notice this statement. You hold my right hand. Pay attention to the wording. He does not say, I hold your right hand. You hold my right hand. It comes along with a picture of a father holding the hand of his child. In my mind, I think about my, like my sons when they were, or daughters, when they were like three or four or five years old. And we would go through a place that was busy, like a crowded airport, lots of people around. I didn't want them to get lost. Maybe we're crossing a road or something. And when you're holding that little hand, at times you'll find the little child gets distracted. And when they get distracted, they want to stop or they pull off towards, who knows, a toy or some candy or something else that looks interesting. But as soon as there's that tug, I'm the one holding the hand. 
And it does not matter how hard my four-year-old tries to pull away. It does not matter what they want to do. I'm the one who's in control. And at times, you all know, parents know, you've done there, you've been that. Every now and then, you just got to pick up the little tyke and we're just going to walk them where we're going. (laughs) And when we get to where we're going, I'm going to let you down. (laughs) This is what it's like with God sometimes. The The psalmist said, I was throwing such a fit. And I wanted to join the wicked. And I questioned if it was all in vain. And I turned my heart against God. And I was like a beast. But even then, you were with me continually. And you held my hand like a child. And you held me up. And the only reason that I ever made it here, it's not because I was so good. It's not because my faith didn't waver. It's not because my heart was always right. I am here because you held my hand, God, and you never left my side. You are so good and you are so loving. And the, the whole attitude changes it's as if he's saying, God, how could I have ever got to the place where I was thinking what I was thinking? You are so good, God. Our God, your God, he's better than I can describe. He's more faithful than I can say. He says, I'm continually with you. You hold my hand. You guide me. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. And then comes the statement that sums up his entire heart change. He takes everything that he was dealing with in the first 14 verses, and here's what he has to say about it in verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Pay attention to the words. He didn't say there's nothing on earth I desire more than you. He said there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. I'm going to come back to that statement. But I want to detour just a little bit here. Sometimes we read statements like that and they can be confusing. Like, so should I not desire my wife? Should I not desire my children? Should there be nothing in this life that gives me any type of gratification other than God? That's not what it's actually teaching. Here's why. Just in those, the example of wife and children, the family is God's design. It was not your idea. God's the one that designed marriage. God's the one that designed the husband and wife relationship. There there is no marriage on the planet that is better than the godly Christian marriage done God's way. And so desiring my wife is actually part of God's plan for my life, see? Loving my children and desiring to invest in them and finding joy in them is part of God's plan for my life. And so when the Bible uses like this really strong term as not telling you that you should have no love for your wife, no love for your children, what it's, what it's dealing with, and he says it, nothing on earth, it's dealing with the earthly rewards of wickedness that the first 14 verses are all about. And the psalmist comes to the conclusion, there is nothing that I thought 
was prosperous that is greater than God. The greatest reward on earth is having God. And I want to I want to try to drive this point home. It is so difficult for so many Christians to even wrap their mind around what I just said because we tend to think of the great thing about God is what we get from God. Like God's favor. God's going to do this thing in my life and God's going to do that thing in my life. But you, you husbands and wives, this will resonate with you. At times, most of us in our marriage struggle at some point or another with feeling desired by our spouse. And the woman who experiences that, often the husband's response is, well, I work, I give you money, I put a roof over your head, you got a car to drive. And this is her honest answer. I'm appreciative of those things. But I didn't enter into this relationship for some transactional relationship where I get things from you. And the same is reversed for men. We want to be desired. But most of us, our relationship with God, it's about what we can get from it. So I want to say this again. What you get from God is not the greatest reward. God is the greatest reward. God has given all of himself to his sons and daughters. If you are a blood-bought, born-again Christian this morning, God's not holding himself back from you. He is the greatest reward. He has given all that he is to you. And when you realize that, when you recognize that Christianity is not about just the do's and the don'ts and how much church do I have to go and how many verses do I have to read to get God to do this thing and that thing in my life and you get past the shallowness of that way of thinking and you realize that the creator of heaven and earth who created you, you were fearfully and wonderfully made that this God has given himself to you you'll come to the same conclusion the psalmist did and you'll say, there's nothing on earth that I desire other than God. There, there's nothing that I want besides him. It's all him. And I will promise you the most fulfilling, satisfying Christians that you will ever meet are people who have moved beyond the shallows of what can I get from God? What's the deal? How much good do I have to do before God will do this in my life? you will find the people that are most joyful in their life are the people who have moved past that shallow way of living and just truly, sincerely are in awe that God has given God to them and that God is theirs and that they are God's and that it's, it's mind-blowing to me. The reality that I can talk to him at any time. That's awesome. The reality that he loves me so much that even when I'm like a beast, nevertheless, he's with me continually. The reality that God, 
I, I have a hard time saying this, but it's true. Like God is so committed to me that when I act like a beast, he holds my right hand and at times has to pick me up like a little child and say, nope, we're going here, Joplin. And then afterwards, I'm like, God, why would I make you do that? I know you're good. I know your ways are true. God, how in the world did I get in that place where I, it's like, what's wrong with me? You know what? God's never is like, I'll tell you what's wrong with you, boy. Because God doesn't focus on what's wrong. He's tender and he reminds me, I love you. And son, if you'll, if you'll get your eyes focused on me and you'll quit fixating on all that's wrong, it'll transform your life. God says to his children, if you will stop looking at our relationship as some transactional relationship where when you do this, you get this, and you will realize the bigger picture, I love you. I love you like a father to a son, but you'll never understand the greatness of my love because it surpasses that of a human father. It's perfect. I love you that much. It will change the way you see your Christianity. And it becomes a joy. Reading the word of God is no longer a burden. It's a joy. You realize this is like my father left it for me so that I can know more about him. Praying is no longer a burden. It's a joy because I'm just talking with my father. I'm just sharing with him what's going on in my life and I'm letting him know how much I love him and how much I appreciate him. I'm gonna go ahead and ask our worship team if you guys would get in place. I got a couple questions I just wanna close with today. Have you ever wondered if God holds back some of these earthly rewards on purpose? Have you ever wondered if he does it so that it'll help us hunger for that which is greater? Can you imagine if everything that you asked for, God just gave it to you? Need a raise, need a car, need a house. That was nice. Can I get a bigger one next time? I did just need a car, but maybe a boat could you imagine if God gave you everything you wanted when you wanted it you ever wondered if God actually says no on purpose because he knows your heart better than you know your heart and he's like listen child you're, kind of, you're hungering for the wrong thing here. this prayer isn't so much about what you need it's not so much about advancing my kingdom this is more about what you want and really, it's about your temporary pleasures. And God says, I'm not, not, not only is that not a great prayer, but I'm, the answer is no, because I got some work I need to do in your heart. And, and I need you to hunger and thirst for something far greater. I need you, I need you to be hungering and thirsting for me. You realize even the prosperity of the wicked, it's a delusion because in the end, it all perishes.